This week's episode is brought to you by Life With Bones, the funniest web series you will find on the internet about a guy living with a sarcastic talking skeleton. Brought to you by one half of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins and one half of the Communicore Weekly Orchestra. Check out the preview today at youtube.com slash Jeff Heimbuck. Hello, and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And it's really weird. I went to look at my watch to see what time it was, and it was melting off of my wrist. <laughs> I wonder where we're going with this one. So are, are, To the watch like, store, hopefully, because I need a new store. watch. <laughs> this, I was trying to be like, was there a melting watch on Lost? Or You're going you through know, all the references in your yeah, head to see what I was going for? With Doctor, I said, I, I got the one reference right off the bat, but I was trying to figure out if there was like an Animaniacs reference or Ooh, I forgot about something about that. that. Yeah, there could be so many references to that. But no, no, just melting watches. I just assumed everybody would know. I mean, unless you're, like, really young, you know, and you're listening to the show, and, like, you don't understand. Like, Leo, I, yeah. I don't think Leo understands anything about melting watches. Cadet I don't know, Leo. he might, he might, you know. Captain Leo, do you know anything about melting watches? Actually, I, he's a pretty worldly kid. Yeah, he and may. he argued with his mom that, you know, Tron, the original one, was hand-drawn animation, not any of that computer stuff. That kid is, like, the it. smartest kid I know. You know? He should be so, running this show, not us. Yeah, well, you know, we can only do so much. That's true. That That's a wow. fair point. Anyway, speaking of melting watches, should we get into the history segment? Yeah. It's time for Disney History! Walt Disney, and by extension, the Disney Studios, is often associated with some of the most beautifully animated and classic films of our time. But most people forget how often Walt tried to branch out and do things a little bit differently. And as he once famously said, you can't top pigs with pigs, you know, because he was always looking for new ways to entertain and branch out a little bit more. And that, cadets, is how Walt Disney and Salvador Dali became friends. Well, that sounded like the end of the segment. It did, actually. Wow. Okay. Or it could have been a bacon commercial. <laughs> singing. Well, anyway. Okay, well, so let's, let's, let's travel back. And before the two had even met... So there we go for our Wayne's World, World restaurant, re restaurant. Wow. There's a Wayne's World restaurant? I'm sorry. Well, go there on. was one at Carowinds. Wait, but really? They changed, yeah, they changed it when the, that side of the park was Wayne's World. They had a ride called the Hurler. Anyway. <laughs> so before the two had met, and we're talking about Dolly and Disney, Dolly had considered Walt a kindred spirit of sorts. Walt said, and I quote, it's kind of fun to do the impossible. Probably not as cheerful as that. While Dolly was literally exploring the impossible through his art. Dolly considered Walt a surrealist in some ways as well, from some of the early animation of Mickey cartoons to the experimental animation of the Nutcracker segment in Fantasia, and even some of the scenes from the films that came out of the Good Neighbor program trip. You know, if you just look at the end of The Three Caballeros uh, with Donald's surreal reverie, you know, you'll see exactly what we mean. But... At the end of the day, both were artists in their own mediums and had a very high mutual respect for each other. 
and Walt and Dolly actually met for the first time in 1945 at a dinner party that was hosted by studio mogul Jack Warner, and the two quickly became fast friends. So they were often seen together at various social situations, but also at the Disney family home. And normally, the Disney family home life was very private. So to include Dolly and his wife Gala into the mix was a big deal. And according to Diane Disney Miller, she found Dolly one hot summer afternoon in a black overcoat sitting alongside Walt as a passenger on the Carrollwood Pacific Railroad, Walt's miniature train at his home. Walt even visited Dolly's home in Spain in 1957. So starting in late 1945, Salvador Dali worked for eight months with the Disney Studios on a short film project called Destino. Now, Disney legend John Hench was actually assigned to work with the eccentric surrealist on the project. And according to him, Dali was very imaginative and generated more ideas in an hour than most people can do in an entire day. And his artistic mind really knew no bounds. So the film itself was to be a love story in which two lovers are separated by a symbolic landscape of transforming obstacles. The animation would be paired with the Armando Dominiquez ballad, Destino. The song would then be sung by Dora Lutz, or Lutz, who also sang You Belong to My Heart in the Three Caballeros film. So Dolly and Hench produced a 17 second uh, test shot of the film together. And in the shot, two gigantic, you know, nightmarish faces, they were suspended from the backs of giant tortoises, and they clumsily come together in the center of this gigantic desert landscape to reveal the shape, uh, the silhouette of a ballerina, who would in turn be the woman in this love story. And then shortly after that, the production was shut down. <laughs> now, uh, some of you uh, might be thinking that this was because this concept was way too out there for uh, a lot of the audiences to comprehend, so the studio shuttered it before it got further along. But in reality, at least the official reason, was because the studio was moving away from the package films that it had been producing in the last few years. These films, which were a collection of shorts packaged into a feature length, included such films as Fantasia, Solos Amigos, and The Three Caballeros. So according to Walt, he said, uh, and I quote, It was certainly no fault of Dolly's that the project we were working on was not completed. It was simply a case of policy changes in our distribution plans, end quote. So mm. soon, you know, all the early design sketches and the screen tests itself were lost. You know, urban legends about the film's demise popped up, and, you know, people were trying to fill in the gap as to why the film suddenly disappeared. You know, thankfully, not all was lost, as originally thought. Roy E. Disney, Walt's nephew, the son of Roy O., became the head of Walt Disney Animation in the 1980s and oversaw the renaissance of Disney, of Disney Animation, you know, the one that we all know of with the mermaid and the beast. When he was helping to plan Fantasia 2000, he discovered the screen test, amongst other things, long forgotten to the rest of the studio. So Roy arranged for Disney Studios French to actually uh, finish the project that had been missing for five decades. And the team of animators poured over all the material that he found, and even sought out the advice from John Hench himself and Dolly's widow, Gala. And it, it took a really long time to complete, but finally, in 2003, the six-minute animated short debuted at the Annecy International Film Festival in France. It was also shown in front of the touchstone film Calendar Girls, starring Helen Mirren. In summer of 2007, the film was shown at the Tate Modern Gallery in London, and a year later, it was part of the Dali exhibit at the Museum of Modern Art in New York and the Salvador Dali Museum in St. Petersburg, Florida. 
you know, again, it, it took some time to complete, but it was really worth the wait. Digital and computer effects that weren't available to animators in the 40s made a huge difference in the completed film. The colors themselves are super rich, very nuanced, aided by the digital ink work of digital film. And, you know, in our opinion, because I know at this point in time we can speak for each other. Pretty much. Because uh, we finished each other's sandwiches. What? The, the, the scene <laughs> where the, uh, the camera swirls around the woman as she runs up the curves of a giant uh, abstract sculpture are some of the most beautiful that Disney has ever produced. Now, like I mentioned earlier with the melting watches, in case you didn't get that reference, <laughs> most of uh, Dolly's iconic imagery also appears in the film. You know, there's got the desert landscapes with the craggy formations on the horizon, the, the warped melting clocks, uh, people turned into abstract images, and ants crawling out of a man's hand. You know, all the things that Dolly is known for and it, it, you know, are shown in some form in this film. And they aren't just shoehorned either. They actually add to the story of the character's love and are part of the moving continuum of, of uh, imagery. And the constant transformations on screen of the landscape that separates the woman and her lover are deeply stirring, each obstacle harder to overcome than the last. And the lovers themselves are transformed into different forms of the landscape also before finally coming back to who they are. Considering how long it took for the film to be made, it's almost fitting that the male lover appears to be Kronos, the god of time. Now, as we're talking about it, you know, it may sound confusing, the story uh, overall, but it really is easy to appreciate. You know, the, the images are compelling, and they give way to moments of pure beauty unlike anything else Disney has done before. And the song itself is a recording from the golden age of Disney animation, and it, it, to me, it's just amazing that they resurrected it from the past to be part of this project, you know, five decades later. And while the song is optimistic and, and quite haunting, it's also very memorable and adds so much to the six minutes of surreal imagery of the film, giving it a shot of momentum and con continuity it might be missing otherwise. Though Dolly was involved in many films in his life, Destino feels most like what a living painting of his would actually be like. Yeah, and the, the film really is, you know, quite wonderful. And it's amazing collaboration between two men who both had these amazing visions in everything that they do. And now, you know, luckily enough, you can also enjoy the film in your own home. You don't have to go to one of these special film festivals or exhibits, you know, because it's one of the special features on the Fantasia and Fantasia 2000 special edition Blu-ray that came out very recently. And, you know, it, it's gorgeous. It's a really bizarre film, but it's gorgeous. <laughs> but yeah, it is. it really is like being seeing a living painting of Dolly's or a work of his art, my first thought was, man, I, he would never have melted an eye watch. No. No, he would There's not. No because way it costs too much money. Way too much money. So uh, we would love to know what you think about Destino or Dolly and Disney's partnership or why it took so long to have this short film actually made. Give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat line at 424-785-4628. That's 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, but we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. This week's book is Disney Discourse, Producing the Magic Kingdom, edited by Eric Smudin, released in 1994. And this is a book that I've had on my shelves for a while and just never looked much past its cover. When you've reviewed almost 170 books on a weekly show about Disney, 
you know, you start reaching after a while. Uh, this book was released in 94, so there wasn't any splash about it recently. Just one I happened to say, hmm, well, we'll try that one. And although the subtitle is Producing the Magic Kingdom, out of the 14 essays that are included, only two of them actually look at the parks, and one of them not really that much. Um, you know, since I do cover other books or books besides just the theme parks here, you know, Disney Discourse just wasn't the title I wanted it to be, even though we look at other things with film and animation and history. Okay, so the 14 essays are divided among four different sections. Number one is a Disney archaeology. Second one is national production. Third is the global reach. And the last one is reception. And the book is set up sort of to take the reader through various time periods of Disney from a cultural perspective and add you know, real criticism to what they're calling the self-styled experts of the early Disney decade, you know, of the early 1990s. Uh, as Smoodin mentions in the foreword, and this is a quote, Disney has emerged as a fit subject for those op-ed page pundits who fancy themselves as cultural critics and who generally have a right-wing political axe to grind, end quote. So right off the bat, I get the feeling that they're going to take a look at Disney and try to explain a lot of the cultural references that people might be mistaking or being mistaken of because <laughs> they're not professional cultural critics, what, I what, guess. Just for me, in layman's terms, what do you mean by the <laughs> cultural references that they are talking about? Like, what, how, what are they explaining away? How Disney has influenced American society and culture okay. and okay. changed it through its films and products and theme parks and stuff like that. Understandable. Okay, okay so the the and it's they're not recent articles. Some of the essays are from, you know, 91, 92, 93. Some of them are from the 40s. Some are from the 50s. Real time. So really, yeah. It's not like the Mickey Mouse Reader. You know, remember that book? Yeah, from... With Gary Apgar? Yes, That book yes. was really engaging, and I felt this was a little too academic for my taste. But anyways, so the first section was called Disney Archaeology, and it's like a primer of sorts. Uh, for people or readers that are looking for an overview of the literature of the Disney salad days, which they are calling the 1930s and 1940s. Sort of how Disney the man became lauded as a genius and how the company grew. So interesting section, but nothing that I didn't already know. The second section, national production, really digs into the corporate practices of Disney in terms of the business, the aesthetics, and the ideology of the company. And the, the last essay in this section actually deals with Epcot and how Disney produces nationalism through the various attractions like the American Adventure and the World of Motion from the songs they chose, the people that were chosen to be in the American Adventure. It was really pretty dense, unfortunately. Um, the third section, Global Reach, was most daunting to read and the most disappointing. Really, it's, it's hard to sum up, um, but there's not much time, so I have to sum up. Three of the four essays, <laughs> and I got the a Princess Bride. Three of the four essays deal directly with the south of the border trip that gave us the three caballeros and a lot of the other package films from Latin America. So right off the bat, I thought, I'm going to love this section. It's great. We love this area. But the essays are also the ones that contain a lot of vitriol about the company. Uh, I really can't talk about one particular because this is a family show. But it was, one of the essays was called Donald's Gender Ducking. And it's all about, I can't even get into any further. And another essay is called Cultural Contagion. So that sort of gives you an idea that it, it's kind of a little negative. 
Uh, the last essay in that section deals with Tokyo Disneyland and Japanese cultural imperialism, and I still don't know what I read. It was it was pretty deep and not it's a lot not about fair. the rides at Tokyo Disneyland. <laughs> so that's what I was hoping for. The last section is called Reception, and besides the first couple essays, I probably enjoyed it the most. It looks at how the public interpretations that the general public made of Disney consumer products over different time periods usually related to the same subject. Like the first essay looks at how Disney cartoons in the 30s uh, would actually, when the kids would watch in the theaters, it would drive kids to the department stores to buy the toys and the other paraphernalia, like toothbrushes. So they would become consumers of Disney products. Then they would become members of the Mickey Mouse Club, which was actually a retour, retail store in itself. And it sort of talked about how Disney almost single-handedly turned purchasing Disney products into a leisure pursuit of itself for kids, which is something I never really thought about. Uh, and the last essay of the whole book looks at the reception of Fantasia over its initial release and the subsequent releases it had in the theaters in the 40s, the 50s, the 60s, and 70s, and finally in 1991, and how it became the best-selling video cassette of all time prior to 1991. And we have to have a disclaimer, kids. A video cassette is sort of like a Netflix that you can't take anywhere. <laughs> and they came in little boxes, sort of like a Blu-ray that looked and sounded pretty bad. Because, yeah, it's hard to believe how far away that was. Anyway, so the book, Disney Discourse, it, as I mentioned earlier, it's not the title that I was expecting. And it's I'm not really as fond of it as I wanted to be. The first and last sections were enjoyable, but the diatribes of the section dealing with the south of the border trip were so wrought with negativity and negative criticism that they were almost hard to finish. I did read the whole thing. I suffered through it for my art here. Um, but it really made reading everything else pretty hard to do. And I felt like that middle section was just sort of taking jabs at Disney, the company, because they were so big and so monstrous. Um, I think, you know, people that might be interested in looking at consumerism and some of the cultural identities set forth by the Disney company might like it, but it's really academic. And it is from 1992, so it's more than 20 years old, and it's feeling a little dated at this point in time as well. So, eh. I don't think it's really worth picking up. That was but, a resounding eh. Yeah, I know. I was like, eh. Uh, this week's book was The Disney Discourse, edited by Eric Smoodin. You don't know what you know till we know you. You, know, you just don't know. Here's one little fact we bet you didn't. One little fact we bet you didn't know. On March 2nd, 1976, at 10.32 in the morning, Miss Susan Brummer, a 13-year-old girl from Vienna, Virginia, was selected personally by Bob Matheson, Vice President of Operations, as the Magic Kingdom's 50 millionth guest since 1971. She won a lifetime pass of the Magic Kingdom, and her younger brother never forgave her. Now we know you. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. Disney's Animal Kingdom, my favorite full-day park, just expanded with the opening of the new Harambi Marketplace. And, of course, with new areas also come new five-legged goats to find. And let's be honest, finding a goat in the Animal Kingdom is always an easy <laughs> task. Because it's an Animal Kingdom. Yeah. Now... 
we talked about this before. I, personally, I'm not really into those hidden Mickeys. I don't know about you, George. Nah, you know, it's, yeah. Yeah, you know, goats are more our, our style. Um, that said, this one is kind of too good to pass up. You know, it's literally the most literal hidden Mickey ever made. Um, over by the train station, there is a painting on the wall with a very stylized version of Mickey Mouse. And below the painting are the words, Fichwa Fellow. Now, in Swahili, Fichwa means hidden. So it translates to hidden fellow. And again, making it the most <laughs> literal hidden Mickey in all the land. Yes, and I have to admit, I enjoyed seeing some of the photos and seeing it because it's, you can tell it's got that not quite official Disney look to it. Yeah. So yeah. it looks like it's been there forever. And, it looks gorgeous. You know, hey, I mean, I think, you know, with adding the Harambe Marketplace, it's now a full day eating park. You know? Why are we friends? Plenty George. of to- <laughs> Because we've been doing this for so long that no one else would do the show with us. We're contractually obligated to be friends at this point. Is that what you're saying? Contractually obligated. Is there something, uh, a clause, that I, a loophole of some sort? Uh, Hang on, I'm going to have to rifle through some papers after the show. Yeah, yeah. Of course, I was trying to go with some weird Tim Allen Santa Claus joke, but no. <laughs> the Santa Claus. The, the Santa Claus. The Communa Claus. <laughs> oh, gosh. Well, the, well, there's no Communa Claus with our year of a million or so limited time cadets. Except Segway. you've got to enter if you want to be considered for one of our weekly prizes. We're giving out a prize every week during season four. We've had some listeners say they didn't know about it, so we're wondering if they, like, stop listening, like, after the book of the week, maybe? Maybe. It's possible. Uh, They'll probably stop listening after the intro. The goat's over with. I'm done with this show. Yeah, we're done. So, But we want everybody to email communicorweekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and your birthday. It doesn't have to be the year, just the day and the month, so we can add you to our prize drawing every week and send you something special around your birthday. Because we rarely hit on birthdays. It's just too difficult. You never know. Um, But this week's prize is a copy of the After the Fair DVD, which we covered a while ago. Both Jeff and I loved it. From director Ryan Ritchie. We understand he loves the film as well. (laughs) Um, But this week's prize winner is Dave H. from Baltimore, Maryland. Hooray! Yay! Congratulations, Dave. You should see that in the mail shortly. And when it comes in, take a photo with your prize. Send it to us. We'll post it on the Facebooks. Make you famous. Communifamous. Communifamous. Exactly. Communifamous. But uh, just remember to email us. And another prize. And that means we've reached the end of the show. Thank you guys so much for watching and listening to Communicore Weekly. Yes, please leave us a comment, you know, whether it's on iTunes, a rating, or if you're watching it on the YouTube, leave us a comment. Let us know what you think of the episode. Yeah, lots of nice comments. We like those. We like the nice ones. Um, <laughs> and in addition to entering the weekly prize drawing, email us at communicoreweekly.gmail.com just to say, hey, what's up, Corey? Sup, Corey? Also, your phone numbers as well for our oh, that's trivia right. I segments. forget about that. We need to do that soon. Yes, yes, we yeah. do. We're just waiting on a theme song. Apparently, <clears throat> that was towards Andy. Not I was gonna say, wait a second. That was yeah. kind of directed towards me, but not no, really. Even though it is Andy. my fault, it's not done yet. No, it's not. No, it's not. Okay, fair enough. I'm closer to him than you are. That's true. Like in proximity, you need to go there and be like, "Hey, Andy, where's my theme song, yo?" I'm his older brother. I can just you know, pound him a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> Anyway, uh, okay. <laughs> you can also <laughs> like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash Weekly. 
And follow us on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Imaginerding. He's at Jeff Heimbuck. And be sure to give us a call on the Communicore Weekly Goat Line at 424-785-4628. And visit CommunicorWeekly.com and click on the Communa Store where you can get our awesome t-shirts from CommunicorWeekly.Spreadshirt.com. And of course, if you want your official cadet membership card and a sweet Communicore Weekly sticker, send mm-hmm. a self-addressed stamped envelope to Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can visit patreon.com slash Weekly and find out how you can help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. Stupid